you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. At the end of uh, last year, we finished up with Mark uh, chapter 8, and um, or really chapter 9 with the transfiguration, and, and I was going to leave it behind for a little bit longer, and then after preaching through Nehemiah, uh, and then returning to Mark for Palm Sunday and for Easter, I really enjoyed it. And so I wanted to go back and finish uh, the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to uh, continue in our study of the, uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, until the very end of it. Uh, and I hope and pray that you'll uh, receive as much blessing from it as I have received in studying it uh, through these last few, uh, really last few months that we had in studying it and for the months that are coming up. Um, so Mark chapter 9. I'm actually going to start, I'm going to read it to us, and then uh, we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding His Word. So let me read this to you. We're going to start at verse 14 of Mark 9. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Him, were greatly amazed and ran up to greet Him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation... How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, he convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, Convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Father, we thank you for giving us this word this morning. We thank you that the goodness of Christ has already been proclaimed to us in the reading of your word. We pray that as we hear from you in the preaching of your word, that you would encourage our hearts once again with the gospel of your grace. Father, we pray that we would behold the glory of your Son, 
Though we might cry that we believe, we need help with our unbelief, just like this Father. We do pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I'm sure all of you have had a similar experience like I've had. You've gone on vacation. Maybe it's an extended vacation of a little bit more than a week. And about two days before you go, have to go back home, you, you, it dawns on you that you have to leave this great vacation. And then just for a moment, you start wondering what it would be like <clears throat> if you didn't go back. <laughs> just kind of sit back and go, hmm, would anybody really miss me? just quit my job and stay here and nobody would really care and I could just have a great time living here. Uh, there's a man uh, that I met that did that in the Virgin Islands. Uh, I went sailing and uh, we were at a restaurant and uh, he was a guy, he was running the restaurant and he um, were like, how did you end up here? And he said, I, I came down and I didn't go back. <laughs> it was so wonderful that he did that. We've all had that moment where we're like, we just don't want to go back. Well, That kind of approaches what it must have been like for the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It it approaches kind of, except that our experience of enjoying a vacation so much that we don't want to go back really has, it it can't compare to what they must have experienced. Look in in verse, uh, or chapter 9, verse 5. Remember, they're up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And then Jesus is transfigured. The glory cloud of God surrounds them. And Peter gets so excited. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And it's almost like this, that Peter is enjoying that moment. I mean, he's terrified because God is there with him. But he doesn't want to leave. He says, let's let's make... Let's make booths. Let's make tents. Let's make a place for us to just stay. And we can stay up up on this mountain forever. But the rest of the story is what happens in the passage that we read today. I mean, God the Father says, This is my beloved son, Peter. Stop talking and listen to him. I mean, he really says it much more forceful than that. But he says, Listen to Peter. And then the glory cloud departs and they... They go down the mountain. Now I want you to understand something that Jesus, if anyone could stay up on the mountain or if anyone could enjoy a vacation forever and ever and ever, it's the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords. Jesus, he could have stayed on top of that mountain surrounded by the glory and the love of his Father forever. He didn't have to come down. But I want you to understand that Jesus did come down. He left that. And in this passage, we understand why Jesus came down. So I want to look at this in three ways this morning. Uh, Three things, three reasons that Jesus came down off of that mountain. First of all, he challenges false religion. He challenges false religions. Secondly, he conquers evil. And then thirdly... He confronts unbelief. So first of all, he challenges false religion. Uh, they come down the mountain. And, and Mark writes, immediately they were greeted. Right. So as soon as they get back from this incredible retreat, this amazing, literal mountaintop experience, 
they're greeted by the mess of humanity. It's like going on vacation and getting to work, and the, the first thing on Monday morning, what you find is an angry email. And you've got to deal with the mess the very first thing. And that's essentially what we see here. They come down off the mountain, and Jesus is greeted by a crowd. And then these self-righteous scribes arguing with his disciples. And so the nine are there. They're arguing with the disciples, and Jesus asks them a question. He says, what are you arguing about with them? What are you arguing about? What is going on? Why is this crowd gathered? Why is this scene happening? What is happening? Um, And what do we see? What what do they do? Well, notice who answers in verse 17. I want you to notice who answers. Because he asks his disciples, what are you arguing about with the scribes? And the disciples don't answer. But who answers his question? The father answers. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at his mouth and, and, um, and makes him mute, and whatever, or it throws him down, he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So I want you to understand the picture of this. Jesus comes down from the mountain. What are you arguing about? The disciples are silent. They don't answer. The scribes don't answer. And then here's a father, a desperate father, who says, well, Jesus, let me tell you what's happening. Let me tell you why they're arguing. I have this son, and this is his condition. He obviously has a demonic spirit in him. And these are the things that are happening. It throws him into fits and convulsions. There are a lot of uh, scholars that try to dismiss this. He just has ep- epilepsy. We'll know uh, there's a lot in this passage that indicates, no, this is not just uh, epilepsy, which is a terrible disease, a terrible illness. This is something so much worse than that. It's, it's actual demonic possession. And the father is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And so he heard the disciples and Jesus were in the area. And he's heard all of the stories about them delivering people from this kind of possession. And he brings his son to them. And they can't drive out the demon. And then what immediately happens after that? Theological arguments start happening. The scribes come in and they go, you know what? Here's why you couldn't do that. Here's why, disciples, you can't drive out that demon. You're not good enough. You see, in Greek and Jewish cultures, in order for someone to drive out a demon, this, by the way, was a very common thing in this day. They had exorcisms all the time, and they had people that were over-exorcisms. And they said that the scribes were the ones that were supposed to do it in Jewish cultures. But in order to do it, you had to be ritually pure and morally pure. You had to be a good man. And so when the disciples can't drive out the demon, the, the scribes start saying, look, that's proof that you're not a good man or that you're not good men. That's proof further that your rabbi, Jesus, is not who he says he is. And then they start getting into a conversation about technique and, and saying, well, in order for you to drive out a demon, you've got to do this and this and this and you've got to be this and this and this. And then you've got to do all of those things. And in the meantime, while they're arguing about all of these things, Who's there but the Father, desperate for help? And what's the crowd doing? All while this is going on, they've neglected the Father and the Son that are there. 
And they're just taking in the spectacle of the scribes and the disciples arguing. And Jesus comes to him. And when he hears about this, whenever he sees all of this happening, that's why he says in verse 19, in anger... He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is confronted by a theological argument. In the meantime, a father is hurting and he needs help. And all the scribes and the disciples can do is just argue. That's what Jesus has come to confront We like to get in theological arguments and to talk about various things that we think are important and the the doctrines of Jesus Christ and the doctrines of, of the word that are so important. But if our doctrines are not leading us to care for those that need help, then there's a problem, not with our doctrines, but with us. And this is why Jesus has come to confront false religion because the scribes and the disciples here think that it's only a matter of technique, it's only a matter of doing it better and doing it right. And Jesus says, no, it's a matter of caring for this man who is hurting. It's not about the good guys and the bad guys, because the scribes would have been the good guys. But here, Jesus turns that all on its head, and he says, no, the scribes aren't the good guys. As a matter of fact, there's nobody here that's good. And he says, here's the proof of that. All of these good guys don't care about the Father. They don't care about the son, both of them in their agony. Jesus says, how long am I going to have to put up with this? And I imagine that Jesus today could say that about us. Could say that about the little things that we like to argue about, the little things that that we like to put in the place of caring for others. Jesus says, how long am I going to have to put up with that? How long am I going to have to put up with you not truly believing the things that you say you believe? I would imagine that Jesus today confronts our false religion as well. How long am I going to have to put up with your faithlessness? Well, that leads us into the next thing that happens because they bring Jesus, the boy, to Jesus. Uh, Verse 20. And then we see Jesus confronting real evil. We need to talk about this for a moment. Uh, And I was... Thinking about this last night, um, most adults in this room fully and and genuinely recognize that evil is real, that there is a real uh, and present evil in this world. Why do most adults believe that? Because we've seen it. Some of us have experienced real evil. It's harder for the children to believe that because as parents, we want to shield our children from the evil of the world and And yet we know that at some point even our children are going to be face to face with evil. Evil is real. And here we have the example of demon possession. Demon possession is not something that happens uh, very often today. Although I will say, and you need to understand that it does still happen. Demons are real. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities of of the world and the spiritual, dark, evil, spiritual forces that lay behind everything else in this world. There's a real and present evil in this world that needs to be confronted. And Jesus came to do just that. And I want you to understand something, that Jesus here doesn't seek for physical answers or physical healing whenever there are spiritual things that need to be done. 
And Jesus understands that at the root of this boy's problem is a very real spiritual issue. And that issue is one of demon possession. Here's some good news for you. Jesus came to confront not just the evil that resides in our heart, but the evil that resides out in the world. The evil that, that has messed with the world to the point where it is just out there and it needs to be confronted. We understand that our sin has consequences most of the time. And whenever we sin, there are consequences to that. And, and we understand that, but it's much harder whenever there are things out in the world when we've done nothing wrong, like this father. You see, most people in this day would have said, well, your son was demon-possessed, so it must have been that you did something wrong. The father says, I didn't do anything. This just happened. Well, there's very real things like that in our lives, aren't there? Don't things just happen to you? Things that are terrible? Things that are proof of the evil that is out in the world? Don't things just happen? You didn't do anything wrong. And they're there. And yet the whole time, while this is going on, the scribes would have been saying, no, you did something wrong. It's your fault. Just like Job's friend back in the book of Job, whenever Job, 10 of his children die, he loses all of his, all of his wealth, and then his health is taken away from him. And, and all of his friends are saying, Job, you must have done something. And Job maintains his innocence. And guess what? God comes and says, Job, you were. This didn't happen to you because you were a bad man. It actually happened to Job so that the glory of God would be more and more displayed. And so God will take the evil that is in the world and use it for his ends and for his purposes. And that's why we have this story here. Why was this boy demon-possessed? Why did it happen? It happened to display the glory of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God to everyone that was there to see it. This is the good news. This is why Jesus... Came, Jesus came to confront the evil in the world. And this is a wonderful thing about biblical Christianity. We have a Savior. We have someone who came to save us from this evil. You cannot find this anywhere else. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other man-made ideal of the way that the world is supposed to work says you have to do it. You have to save yourself. But only in Christianity do we see a Savior who leaves his Father's throne above. Why? Because, as Charles Wesley says, so free and infinite was his grace that he came and he left it for our sake to confront the evil that is in the world. It's only in Christianity that we have this. We have a Savior who has come to rescue us. Uh, look in verses... Um, Look in verse uh, 22. Well, Jesus asked in, in verse 21 first, he says, how long has this been happening to him? That, uh, just notice that is irrelevant to what's about to happen. <laughs> Why does Jesus ask this question? Well, he's trying to get the father to reflect on his life and everything that's happened. How long has he been like this? And, and he answers from childhood. We don't really know the age of, the, of this boy. Uh, he might be as old as 13 years old. And when he says from childhood, he means from his very earliest age. So imagine that. Just maybe for a decade or more that the father has been watching his beloved son racked with suffering because of this demon possession. Jesus didn't have to ask him that, but he does to draw the father out. To get him to reflect on all the things and all the suffering that he's gone in. To make the glory of what Jesus is about to do so much greater. 
But he says this in the midst of that. How long has this happened? And he said, um, uh, and he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I, what's interesting about that? Well, notice what the man asked. <laughs> he said, if you are able, if you can. He doesn't say, if you're willing to, to do this. He questions Jesus' ability to do something. And that is why Jesus responds with this sharp rebuke. Jesus says, if you can. And I would imagine that when he says it, there's this thundering that goes out and people are like, ooh, Jesus. Because he questioned the strength of not just a man, but of God himself. If you can. And he responds by saying, all things are possible for one who believes. And this is one of those passages that gets taken way out of context. And you're told all over the place that if you just believe enough, then you can get whatever you want. Um, so if you just let me just challenge you today. I want you to um, just to prove that that's not what this means. That this isn't about you getting anything that you want. I want you to really truly believe and have faith and believe that you can be transported to the Virgin Islands today and not be here anymore. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Unless you pay a lot of money for somebody to take you there and do all that sort of stuff. You can't just believe anything. And that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not a matter of just believing to get what you want. But those who believe have the power of God available to them. Those who believe in the power of God get to see impossible things happen. Because nothing is impossible for God. And that's what Jesus means when he says all things are possible for the one who believes. He questions Jesus' ability and Jesus says, I can do it. And here's the good news for us. It's not just that Jesus is able to do it, but that he's willing to do it. My my favorite all-time hymn We don't sing it here very much. I was going to sing it today and then I decided not to. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, doubt no more, something like that. I think I got that wrong. But Come ye sinners. And then there's one line on there where it says, he is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Jesus is able to save us. And he's willing to do it as well. We see the nature and the goodness of our God here. Because Jesus has come to conquer evil. The last thing we see is that Jesus confronts unbelief. And we see this in two ways. Because uh, this, this father, he gives this incredible response immediately. Verse 24. The father of the child cried out and said... I believe, help my belief, that word cry out is the same word that's used of Jesus crying out on the cross. It's a crying out in agony. I believe, help my unbelief. And what an incredible thing for him to say. This is the true confession of every Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, but then there's also the truth. But I need help because I don't. 
It's a paradox to be sure. It's confusing to be sure. There's a tension in this. Yes, but it is the truth. Do you believe? Yes, but I need help with my unbelief. This is an honest description of what it means to be a Christian. And if you're honest, this is you this morning. Do you believe? Yes. Do you need help with your unbelief? Yes. We struggle. We are weak. We are helpless to do the things that we truly need to be done in our lives. We cannot conquer evil on our own. We cannot face sin, the sin that remains in our hearts. We cannot do it. We can't face the suffering in our lives because we are weak. Do you believe that Jesus can do everything that he has promised to do? Yes. But don't you need help in your unbelief? Yes, you do. And this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants honesty. What a great place to be for this man. I believe. But I I don't. (laughs) And I need help with that. Now contrast the father with the disciples. And to do that, you have to go all the way down to the end. And of course, Jesus heals the boy. He, he, he casts the demon out of the boy. And the, the boy is completely freed. He's completely healed. And then uh, verse 27, um, or I'm sorry, verse 28. And when his disciples entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus has this response. Well, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you realize what happened? The nine disciples that were left down in the valley, they weren't on the mountain with Jesus. They were down there. They were attempting to face down the evil of this demon in their own strength and their own power. Nine close disciples of Jesus, who probably had at this point in his ministry really good theology... (laughs) a really good understanding of the way things were supposed to work, did not once, it did not once cross their mind, you know what we should do? We should probably ask for help in this. <laughs> they did not pray as they were staring a demon in the face, saying, we're, we're, we're too weak to do this. Lord, can you help? They refused. There's a different kind of unbelief here. The unbelief of the Father that says, I believe and I need help with my unbelief. And the unbelief of the disciples who say, we don't need God at all. We can do it. Uh, this is where one of, my, uh, one of my professors said, Jesus gives a parable. With a, and a parable has a sting in the tail like a, like a scorpion. You face it head on and then it whips its tail around and you don't see it coming. And then it just stings you. And Jesus says, well, see the problem, disciples, is you thought you were something when you're truly nothing. <laughs> you can't do it. You believe in yourself and you don't believe in God. That's the sting in the tail. They, they didn't pray. They didn't depend upon God. So this morning you have a choice. You have a choice. Which are you going to be? Are you going to be like this father who says, I believe and yet I need help in my unbelief? Are you going to be honest? Or are you going to be like the disciples that say, oh, I can do it on my own. I don't need God. Only one of those things will allow you to see the impossible happen. Only one of those things will allow you to see the power of God at work 
in the life of in your life, in the life of your family, to do things that you never thought were possible. Namely, to save you from your sin, to save you and your family, to save your children from all of the things that causes them to deserve hell. Which one are you going to get this morning? Let me conclude by this. Jesus saves. I love verse 27. People are coming running up saying, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And Jesus said, Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. This is a way of saying that the boy is, he might as well be dead. And what happens? Jesus literally takes him. The word that's used is he seizes the boy. He grabs him. And when he says he lifts him up, it's not just merely that he says, okay, come on, come on, come on. One translation says he gently lifted. No, Jesus forces the boy to stand up and says, live. And what happens? The boy arose. That is what Jesus does for all who are dead in their sin and trespasses. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he said, rise and you rose. He took you by the hand and he forced you to rise. If you were here this morning without faith and you are still dead in your trespasses, yet Jesus still stands ready to save, ready to raise you from the dead. And let me just remind you, this is written to a people who are persecuted. They were literally facing death. They would leave their church services and Roman guards would be there to take them to their death. And Mark is saying they can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Jesus spares you. He preserves you for himself. There's nothing in this world if you are with Jesus, if you are his, that will snatch you out of his hand. You are more than conquerors in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our unbelief to believe. We thank you for your son and for the salvation that he accomplished through his finished work. We pray this in Christ's name.